Lord, we are so thankful that you didn't just pay the penalty of our sin and just forgive us and say you're good, but yet you invite us into a relationship and into your family, that you've made us sons and daughters of yourself. Thank you that that's who we are, that we are loved by you, accepted by you, approved of by you, and that nobody can take that from us. It's who we are based on your goodness and your love to us. Lord, help us to live as people, the people of God in the world. Help us to live in such a way that it reflects who you are and what you've done to the people around us. It reflects who we are, firm in who you've made us in Christ Jesus, that we might be able to display the beauty of the gospel to the world around us. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that this week. Help us to do that as a church body. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to be picking up in Jude. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 25, the end of the um, book here in just a moment. Uh, Michael really laid out for us uh, this series about contending for the gospel here in the book of Jude. And last week, he really talked about fighting for, contending for, protecting a gospel doctrine. And what that means is there are people that are creeping into these churches that Jude was writing to, and one of the temptations... Uh, was for people to think that there's salvation outside of Jesus, to take their eyes off of Jesus, to be led astray from Jesus. And then when we're led astray from Jesus, doctrinally, foundationally, other things creep into our lives and get expressed in the way that we live. And Michael went into some of those last week as Jude got into as well. And so this week, really at the ending of the chapter, we see Jude uh, saying, hey, now that you're you're on the solid rock of this gospel doctrine, what's the culture of your churches going to be like? Because what we believe should drive what we do. What we believe should actually impact our everyday life and how we live with one another as a church. That might not be a question that you think about much. It's like, I don't know if you even get a lot of questions about this. Maybe you invited somebody to, to visit Double Oak and you're like, hey, what's the, you get the question, hey, what's the culture of your church like? Anybody ever got that question? This is like the number one question that I, yeah, I'm a pastor, I get it. But like, it's the number one question that I ask the like people. What's your, not only was your church believe, that's important, but what's, what's the culture of your church like? And so this small book called The Gospel by Ray Ortland in the Nine Mark series, very short book. I love short books. If, if I can read it, you can read it. It's short, it's simple. He puts it on the low shelf for you, which is where I need it. And so he takes these awesome, huge things, puts it on the low shelf. Here you go, Clay, you can take this. So I really commend this book to you. And in this book, he really lays out what is culture in the church, and then what does a gospel culture look like, which is what Jude is calling the people to contend for in this passage. And so where do we get culture from? It's a borrowed word, we will admit. Uh, by culture, we're taking J.I. Packer, a theologian, says culture is a word borrowed from sociology, which means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. So our mindset is around Jesus Christ. Our convictions around the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus entered real time and space, lived the life that we could not, went, went to the cross, died a sacrificial death in our place, died and was resurrected, and that we can place our hope and our trust in him, be forgiven of our sins, receive righteousness from the Lord, be drawn into his family, we're saved. That's the gospel. And so we have that shared belief. That's what brings us together in this room today. Look around the room for one moment. 
I love it. Everybody just stares straight ahead. Look around the room for one moment. This is the interactive part. And all the introverts are like, why are you making me do anything? Uh, I'm sorry. Look around the room. There's a diverse people in this room. Ages and stages of life, experiences, backgrounds, cultures, races. This is represented here. What could bring together in such a divided time that we live in? What could bring people together? like this in this room. There's nowhere else this is going to happen. It's around the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord does. He meets all of us in our place of need, our need for salvation, our need for forgiveness of sins, and provides his son as that means. This is what draws us together. This is what makes us the church. This is the foundation, the cornerstone of what we believe. And this is what we're here to do together is to express that gospel. Notice that. It's our lifestyle and expression of the gospel that creates culture. And so in the book, he also goes on and lays out, there's three types of church cultures. First one is this, where you have gospel doctrine, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have, you have orthodox belief that is of the historic Christian faith, but yet you minus the gospel culture. You lack a culture that expresses that belief. And I would say you know, in the book, he says it leads to hypocrisy. I call that a legalistic, moralistic church, where the rules, the do's and don'ts become what the foundation is, that if you don't do these certain things and you do do these other things, that becomes the real things that saves you. And the real things that we're rallied around is that. And that's the culture that gets expressed. And that is not who we want to be. Hypocrite is not a great word. I don't think any of us would like to be that, even though we all are at times. Uh, but we do not want to be, as Double Oak Chelsea, a legalistic, moralistic church. You're, you're not going to find that here, I hope. And if, if you do, I hope we would help protect the gospel doctrine and culture to weed that out in our church or in myself. Uh, also, there's some churches that have gospel culture, yet no doctrine, which seems weird. <laughs> that, that they're not united on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what brings them together is that there is kind of this loving community that wants to do good for the world and stuff like that. I would honestly say if it's not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have a church. It's really just secular humanism. Secular humanism says this. It says we can achieve goodness in the type of people we need to be in the world minus religion, minus the church. And that's where a lot of our culture lies today. We don't need religion. We don't need a relationship with Jesus. We can do this thing on our own. We're good enough people, aren't we? And if you know yourself, it's like, nope, that's not the answer. And so we want to be this as a church. We want to be a church that's built on gospel doctrine plus gospel culture because that's where the power of the Holy Spirit lies. The power of the church to gather up this body. The reason you're here, the reason that people are being drawn to Double Oak Chelsea, I hope, is because we have a gospel doctrine, a shared belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ that would express itself to be an attractive community to those around us. That we be a people and a church that people want to come and be a part of. A church where they're experiencing the power of God in their life through the Holy Spirit as he pours out the gospel deeper and deeper into our lives, and that we would do that with one another. We don't do that just individually. You alone can't be the church. We are the church together as a gathered people, and we want to be gathered on these two things, and we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. And so we see, building off what Michael had last week of gospel doctrine, this belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, the Father who sent him before 
the foundation of the world to love us and to save us, the Trinity working together. How do we see this expressed in our church? And so here's what he's contending for in Jude. It's uh, one chapter, so Jude 7, verse 17, here we go. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then you have the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to which we say thanks be to God. I hope to draw out four things from this little, these little short conglomeration of verses. The, the first thing I think that we see here is how he wants them to contend for a gospel culture is by seeking to be a godly people filled with the Spirit and united in gospel doctrine. We see that in verses 17 through 19. And you might be looking at that and saying, Clay, I don't see that. I'm going to try to hopefully pull that out for you. And so he says right out the gate, hey, you shouldn't be surprised that sin is entering the church. You shouldn't be surprised that you're having sin issues in your church because the apostle said, this is what's going to happen in the last days. Side note, this is for free. The last days began when Jesus Christ rose and went to heaven and they thought they were in the last days here in the passages. And guess what? So are we still here in the last days. And I think we look and we see one of the apostles in the scriptures writing and warning people of these things. One of the examples of the prophets or the apostles uh, telling us about these things, warning against these sins that are coming into the church, we can see in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So as a church, we should not be surprised by sin, and we should not be surprised by times of difficulty and suffering. I've got to be honest, in my own life, it's, I'm surprised when I see my sin, <laughs> And I'm surprised when I experience times of suffering and difficulty. But the Lord says, this is coming. This is not, this is normative. That God just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy is a new thing. This is, not that God can't do those things. He might do those things. But that of what we are guaranteed is this. Welcome to the Christian life. Uh, he says this, though, uh, for people will be followers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedience to their parents. Kids? No? Okay. All right. Um, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, who's he writing to here? Is he saying this is what the culture is going to be like? For sure. But he's also saying this is, what's going to, this is what the church is going to have to fight against. That this is going to exist in the church and we're going to have to root it out by the power of the gospel. 
So in verse 19, we see markers of these types of people in the church. People that are trying to take us away from the gospel. People that are trying to draw us away from Jesus. People that are trying to draw us away into sinful worldly lifestyle. We see three things that mark them in verse 19. They're people who cause division. They're people who are worldly people. And they don't have the spirit of God in them. So if that's true and markers of those people, we could take the inverse of that. And that should be markers of the people of God. So we should be not worldly people, but godly people. Now, when I say this, hey, we need to be godly people. I think a lot of y'all would say, absolutely. We need to be godly people. We're God's people. Let's be godly people. Now, if I were to ask you to sit down and have a meal with you and say, what does it mean to be godly? I bet we'd get like tons of answers, tons of different answers of what it means to be godly. And so what does it mean truly to be godly people? Well, over here we have worldly people. Now, not this side of the room. I'm not calling you worldly. I'm just standing over here so you have a reference point for an illustration. I mean, you might be, and let, I'll let God work that out. But anyways, godly we don't want to be worldly people. So here we are, worldly people, marked by the things Michael's been preaching about and Jude pulls out in the last two weeks, people who want to uh, just go on life their own, people who want to save themselves, people who think they can create the culture they want to create, people that think they can do whatever they want and it's going to be fine. They have these worldly people. He says, don't be these people. And we're like, okay, don't be these people. Immediately beeline it away from being these people. Probably should stop right here, but we don't. And we swing that pendulum. And that pendulum, we swing completely the other way because that's all we know to do, right? Well, I don't want to be those people over there. Sorry, y'all. But we're swinging the pendulum over to this side, and we're going to be godly people. And what that ends up looking like many times is the church culture that has gospel doctrine yet no gospel culture, a legalistic or a moralistic church, because that's all we know. Okay, well, if, if they're doing all the wrong things over there, then we're just going to redefine all the right things over here, and we're going to be godly people. But the problem is, in that passage that Paul just said, there's people who have the appearance of godliness, but it lacks power. It lacks power. You know what that means? It's a dead church. A church that is founded on what they don't want to be about, the do's and don'ts, and that they're going to define morality for themselves, at least the ones that they can keep, and that they're going to use that as a gatekeeper to keep you out of the church or in the church. That's not a godly church. This is what Jesus got really mad at with the Pharisees. They had all the rules and the things right, but yet they lacked heart. They had lip service to God, but no heart for God which equals no power in the way they were really living their life. We don't want to then swing the pendulum from, okay, we don't want to be worldly people, but the only other type of people I know how to be are legalistic or moralistic people, and that becomes the goal of the Christian life. And I want to tell you this, it's not wrong to have some rules. It's not wrong to have some rules in our life and regulations. It's not wrong to seek to be a moral people. But when we make that the goal, and we make that the measure of the Christian life, two things happen. One, if we're legalistic, we become self-righteous. Our, our life is no longer founded on the righteousness given to us through Christ. It's founded on how well I can keep the rules. And guess what? If I can keep them better than you, even better. Even better. And that's what self-righteousness does. And then if we're moralistic, we put it at least on the morals we know we can keep, right? And then we redefine that ourselves however we want to. And we think it's biblical. Yeah, I'm redefining them and adding extra things. And saying, this is what it looks like to be the godly people. But all that does, the moralistic person, makes them more than self-righteous, self-superior. 
Have you ever been around these people? By the way, neither of us like hanging out with these people, do we? Do, do you enjoy being a part of a community where you're judged by what you do and you don't do and whether you're in or you're out? No, nobody likes that. And then nobody wants to hang around just the moralistic person because if we don't measure up to their morals and we failed that week and we're in an accountability group with them and we start sharing, all they do is belittle us. And I don't want to go to that group anymore. Okay, how do we be godly then? If it's not just doing whatever you want and pursuing the ways of the world, if it's not just about rules and regulations and just seeking to be a good moral person, then what is being a godly person? The pendulum needs to come back to the middle, and it needs to come back to this narrow road of the gospel. The narrow road of the gospel is where we want to be godly people. Godly people are gospel people. What do we mean by this? Here's what we mean. That, remember when Jesus said that he's the gate that you have to enter through, and that it's a narrow road that we go down, and a few and far few people find that gate? Well, here's the reason. That gate's big enough for one person to walk through, and he did it, Jesus Christ. When he walked the perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the grave, he opens up this gate to the faith to be the people of God, to be gospel people. He walks through the gate, and then we join him as we believe in Jesus. And we're put on the narrow path of the gospel as we pursue and follow Jesus Christ. And so as we have people coming on this narrow road, sometimes we fall off into these ditches. Sometimes we fall off in these different ditches. And so sometimes when I lose sight of Jesus Christ and the people around me who are pointing me to him, my gospel community, I will fall over into this ditch of doing whatever I want. I'll fall over into this ditch of doing worldly things and just pursuing the world and what it says. And you know what I need? For people who are on the narrow road to snatch me out. I need people to snatch me out of my worldly ways and to put me back on and encourage me to be back on the narrow road of the gospel with them following Jesus. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, there's others of us that will tend to fall off this ditch and go back to the legalism and moralism and make it the goal because that's all we ever knew about the Christian life. And then then we're going to have to have people pulling us out of our self-righteousness, pulling out of our superiority and pulling us back onto the humble road of the gospel because I need Jesus today as much as the day I was saved. The, I'm, the same gospel that saved me is going to sustain me and bring me home. And we're going to walk the narrow path as a church built on the doctrine and foundation of Jesus Christ. It's a narrow road because that's hard. Because it's so easy to go the way of the world. It's so easy to go the way of the religion. And the gospel path is hard. And we need others to keep us on it. We need to do this together as a gospel people. Godly people are gospel people. Uh, we, next, he says, these people that are causing these divisions are devoid of the Spirit. So if we have trusted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, repented of our sins, uh, accepted him into our life, his work on our behalf for salvation, we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about that. We have the third person of the Trinity that we're all collectively sharing in if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. And that this Spirit it's the very spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead. This is the kind of power living in us. Now, the Holy Spirit being filled with it, he's not filling us with some weird, undefined power, right? I didn't just wake up today and I'm like, yeah, full of the spirit. I just woke some people up. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, I'm full of the spirit. I mean, maybe you woke up that way and that's great, but that's not how it works for me. Usually I'm having to hit my knees early in the day and say, Lord, I can't do it today. 
Lord, these temptations in my life on either side of the ditch are too great. I need your spirit to fill me with the gospel. I need to be filled with the person and work of Jesus today. I need to remember that my identity is in Christ so I don't have to find it in my work. I need to be reminded that if I'm accepted by God, the universe, or Jesus Christ, I don't need anybody else's acceptance. And what that does is free you. It frees you from pursuing those things because you already have them in Jesus Christ. And it frees you to walk the narrow road of gospel with other believers. And so we are prayed to be filled with the Spirit to fill us with the gospel. Not just some weird undefined power or weird self-help that we call the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to do what only God can do. Here's what Jesus said the Spirit would do in John 16, 14 through 15. Here's Jesus talking. Jesus says, he will glorify me. So the Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus Christ. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Pretty clear here that the Holy Spirit in our life is taking all that Jesus has done for us and pouring it out into our lives and into our heart. That Romans 5, 5 says that the Spirit is pouring out the love of God into our hearts. It's not this vague love. It's not this undefined thing. It's the power, the person and work of Jesus Christ by the third person of the Trinity being poured out into your life. That's powerful. That's the kind of power we want to experience as a church. So we want to be godly people filled with the Spirit who's applying the gospel to us that we might be united in gospel doctrine. That we might be people who are not, as it says in this passage, creating divisions. Wow, um, I haven't seen a lot of division in the world today, have you? I haven't seen a lot of division in the church today, have you? No, this is here, people. And it's not just in the world. We need to look around the room. We need to look in the mirror. I need to look in the mirror. Am I a person who brings unity when I come into the room around the gospel? Or am I somebody who's looking to divide the room based on some kind of preference I want to put before the gospel? That's a hard question. Am I coming into the room and am I seeking unity? Or am I immediately, as we so lovingly call people, playing devil's advocate? Now again... I'm one of those people that likes to do that. I like to bring the other side of the equation into a discussion. I don't think I want to be the devil's advocate, though, right? Especially when we come to spiritual things. I want to be a person who comes into the room, and I might have an opposing viewpoint because I'm trying to bring people back, but what am I trying to bring them back to? My little pet project? My little awesome spiritual thing? My rules and regulations and morality? Or am I bringing people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I pulling them back onto the narrow road of the gospel that we would be a people marked by the gospel? Marked by Jesus, saved by Jesus, kept by Jesus, as it says in the beginning of Jude, filled with his Holy Spirit. And that I can't do this alone. I need you. You need me. And we need to live this belief out in a gospel culture in a church. And that's what he calls them to do as we look at verses 20 through 21. There's one command here in this passage. It's a weird command. It says it in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command we find in this. Here's why it's a weird command. How do I keep myself in something that I've been given for free that I didn't deserve 
How do I keep myself in that? I'm not even in the equation. The Lord did it all. All I brought was the sin. All I brought was the brokenness. So then how can Jude say to keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, the first thing is this. The first way to keep yourself in the love of God is to remember you are loved by God. He loved us first. Romans says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? He knew who you were in all of your brokenness, and he loves you anyway, and came to earth anyway to die a sacrificial death in your place because he loves you, like really loves you. To remember that we are loved by God seems like such an easy thing, but yet if we really start to think about it and how our lives express themselves, do we really believe it? Do we really believe we're loved by God? That we're accepted by him, that all the blessings of Christ Jesus are ours now, and the Spirit's trying to pour them out into our hearts. But will we let him? Will we participate with the Spirit? He's trying to affirm all these gospel truths to our lives. Will we do it? So the command is to keep ourselves in the love of God, and then he also gives us some ways to do it within these verses. And here's what he says. He says the first thing is that you, beloved, this is as a whole, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So he's saying that you and I alone can't do it. That we have to do this with other people. That the call to build ourselves up in our faith is not a solo project. I don't know where I got this quote from this week, but I know it's not mine because it's too good. Uh, It says this, community is the soil where faith grows. Community is the soil where faith grows. So this gospel doctrine has to take root. And for a gospel culture to be produced amongst the people, you got to be a part of a people. You got to have people in your life where their community is built on gospel doctrine. I've got friends. Who's got friends? I've got friends. I've got lots of friends that I do different things with, and we have different affinities, and that's what brings us together, right? I've got friends that are Texas Longhorn fans. I know it's like super inoffensive in here. Michael always talks about Auburn, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, so I connect with some people because we love the University of Texas, mainly football. Please be better this year, right? We, we connect on that. And that's community we have around that team and what they do and what they're about. Da, da, da. Uh, you know, I have a grilling group. You get some awesome text in that group. Some of, them are, some of those people are in this room. And, and we, we, we show people what we're grilling and what we're smoking and, and, and all that kind of stuff. We love that. But it, a lot of people have community. What I'm trying to get to, a lot of people have a lot of community around different things. But I'm asking you, do you have a gospel community? Do you have a community that's built on Jesus Christ? Do you have people in your life that know where you're at today, not where you were 15 years ago, where you are today in your faith and how Jesus is a part of it and how they can come alongside you to help you? Do you have these people in your life? That's gonna, we might have to ask some hard questions around this, and I'm glad you asked. We'll put some on the screen. Here's what we need to think through as we're thinking through how do we build ourselves up in the faith together as a gospel community, the church? Uh, Number one, do we have people that we need to have a conversation with the build community? I know that's hard for people that don't like to be the initiators of conversations, but at least it's not a hard one like Michael was telling y'all to have a couple weeks ago. This is a fun one. This is where you're trying to say, I want to know you. I want to be your friend built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you who I am, the good, bad, and the ugly, and I know you're going to accept me because Christ already has. The gospel allows us to be vulnerable with people. It allows us to say, well, the reason we're gathered in this room today is because we all know that we're sinners in need of the grace of God. 
We're all here look as beggars looking for bread, as Martin Luther would say. We're just trying to show each other Jesus and his gospel and be refreshed in it together that we can go out and stand another week in the world. But you cannot do this alone. Who do you need to have a conversation with to have gospel community? Uh, for some of us, we need to ask each other, uh, where are you struggling to believe the gospel and how can I come alongside you? This should be a normal question in this church. This should be a cultural question that defines who we are as Double Oak Church Community, uh, community Church Chelsea. Gosh, if I could talk. This should define us, that we're people who can go to each other and say, hey, where are you struggling to believe? How can I help you? Hey, where are you struggling to live out the gospel? How can I help you? Hey, hey maybe you're not living in the gospel. Why don't you come into the community that I'm a part of? I'd love to do that with you. I did that with Paxton this week. He talked about having a hard week. Unfortunately, I was one of the people he called. But, because guess what? I say unfortunately, not to be self-degrading. I was not having a great week either, okay? I was not having a great week. And you know what we did for each other? helped each other believe what the other couldn't. He was telling me his struggles and I encouraged him in belief. I was telling him my struggles. He encouraged me in belief. And I hung up that phone and knew he was praying for me. I was praying for him and I was encouraged in the gospel. Do you have these kinds of people in your life? If you don't, that's what we're here for. This is what the church is for, to create these kinds of relationships around the gospel. Uh, You know, for some of us that have this kind of community already, who do we need to invite into? Who do we need to invite into our gospel community? We need to be sharing this gospel life together, not withholding it from each, from each other. So who do we need to be inviting into community? And then for us on the outside that don't have community, we need to seek this gospel community and ask yourself a hard question. What's stopping me from being a part of this community? Coming on Sunday morning, hey, I'm glad you're here. This is a great first step. This is a grace first step to be involved in our church, to be able to sing together the gospel truths, to be able to pray together, to be able to hear God's word preached, to be able to be encouraged as we go out of this place. But that's just part of being the church. Where the life of our church really lives out for Double Oak Chelsea is in our community groups. We got some community groups meeting right now. We had some community groups meeting at 9 a.m. And we've got some community groups meeting throughout the week in people's homes. And we're going to need a good marker of are we building a gospel culture is how many people are connected in community. So I'm not just trying to connect you into community because I'm the community guy and I want you to be in the community group so that I can look great and be good at my job. No, that's not the reason. The reason I want you to be in a gospel community is because you can't live without it. I can't live without it. We need people in our lives that will point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ that will be with us when we're struggling, that will help us believe that'll do it when we can't. Someone to bring us a meal when we're struggling. Somebody to send us an encouraging text. We need these kinds of people in our life. What's holding us back? Because we can't build up our faith by ourselves. He says it in this passage, we got to do this together as we keep ourselves in the love of God. Moving on, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. That we are to be a people who is praying that the Spirit of God would move in this place in such a way that we can't take credit for it. You know what? I mean, we're, we're, some of us are pretty talented people. Some of us can get some stuff done. But where does faith really enter into that equation? Or do I just say, Holy Spirit, this is what I want to do with my life. Sprinkle a little Jesus on it and keep going. Or do we stop and we say, God, who do you want us to be as a people? God, how do you want to shape our church? I would, I would implore you to pray for us as a church uh, Collectively. We got some big decisions to make as a church. Pray for the elders of our church. 
Pray for other committees that we're going to get involved in this process. Pray for our church. Are we praying for our pastors? Are we praying for our other staff? Are we praying for the ministers? Are we praying for the ministries that we're involved in in this church? Are we praying that it, God wouldn't just build up a church here for numbers or success, but that the gospel might be proclaimed and experienced? We need your prayers in this. We can pray together in the Holy Spirit that he would produce what only the Holy Spirit can do. Because we can't do it on our own. Join us in praying together in the spirit that he would make this place a place that's famous for the gospel. That's not just believed, but expressed in culture and community. We need this. Our community needs this. Uh, and it says that we need to wait on the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That we're in this kind of active waiting as we are looking for Jesus' return, that we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, surrounding ourselves in community, praying together that God would move in such a way that we can't take credit for, and we'll wait patiently until he returns. That's the plan. That's what Jude leaves them with. I don't know about you, but I think I could have come up with a better plan. This doesn't sound like the most exciting stuff, does it? You know, Michael talked about this a few weeks ago. The quiet life, the ordinary life of the gospel working in our lives is what God's calling us to. Will we put in the ordinary work? Will we put in the work of building community? Will we put in the work of praying? Will we put in the work of pulling people out of the ditches of worldly ways or legalistic, moralistic thinking onto the narrow road of the gospel? That's the work he's given us. It's not glamorous. It's not amazing. But if we do it, waiting with mercy for the Lord to be revealed when he comes back, God's going to do something here. And it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be something that we can't take credit for. And it's going to be great. This is what we're inviting you into. And we need to participate in it with each other. And as we're waiting for God's mercy, it helps us to have the end in view. Are we living with the mindset for today? Are we living with the end in mind? Because the mercy he's talking about is just not immediate mercy. It's the mercy we find that leads to eternal life. It's a patiently waiting, living with gospel vision to say, this is where I want my life to go. This is how I want my life to count. These are the people I want to do with, with and now let's go. But the let's go is this stuff. Some of us get really pumped up. We love a to-do list, ready to crush it. Well, here's your to-do list. But I got I, I to think this isn't the stuff we necessarily called for or asked for. But it's the thing Jude is saying will change your life. It's the thing Jude is saying will change our lives collectively. So will we be these kinds of people? Thirdly, in verses 22 and 23, he talks about we need to contend for a gospel culture by living out the gospel in Christ, by extending his mercy to people who are struggling in doubt and trapped in their sin. And this isn't outside the church, this is inside the church. So... Will we come alongside people who are struggling to doubt that Jesus is the Savior? Will we come alongside people who are struggling and really saying, can I really trust God? Does he really love me? Does he really accept me? Does his grace, is, can his grace really transform my life? Can he really address this area of my heart that's so broken I don't even know what to do with it? These kind of doubters, are we making room for them? Not just making room for them, are we coming alongside them in the mercy of Jesus Christ? We're coming alongside them, walking with them through their doubts, trying to answer their questions if we can. If not, just to say, I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. I'm believing when you can't believe. I'm praying the prayer. 
you know, I want to believe, help my unbelief. Or do we extend that kind of grace to the people that are doubting in our midst? Hey, Jesus did this. Who remembers uh, the disciple Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas, which is, he probably is like up in heaven right now, like, dang, that's what I'm kind of known for. But Thomas, he misses when the, Jesus returns to the disciples and says, here I am. Look at my hands. Look at my side. This is really me. I've risen. I've did what I said. <laughs> now rejoice. And Thomas missed that meeting. Don't know what Thomas was up to. Seems like that was an important meeting to, to be a part of. I don't know. Jesus kind of came in through the walls unannounced, though, so that's also different. But anyways, Thomas meets, misses it, and they come to Thomas and say, hey, man, amazing thing happened. Jesus is back. He's alive. This thing is real. Holy cow. And he's like, cool, cool for you guys. I'm not going to believe until I touch his hand, I touch his side. I'm not going to believe. This is a disciple who walked with Jesus. He says, I'm not going to believe until I touch him. Eight days later, Jesus, again, does this cool magic trick, comes in through the walls here, peace, peace be with you, because the doors were locked because they're afraid they're going to get uh, caught, afraid they're going to get dragged out and murdered. And so he comes in and says, peace be with you. And he makes a beeline to Thomas. And you know what he does? Thomas, how could you not believe? How could you not be believing in what I did? How could you doubt? How could you struggle? Man, get out of the disciples. Is that what happens? No. But how quick are we to do that as a church? How quick are we to do that with people? Not Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the culture he was creating. Jesus comes to Thomas and said, this is what you need to believe. Then here I am and touch me. Touch my side. Touch my hands. I'm going to give you what you need to believe. So are we going to, if we're doubters in the room, hey, I would encourage you, Jesus is not going to scold you if you ask him what you need to believe. He would have done it to Thomas. He didn't. He came and gave Thomas what he needed to believe. The Lord wants you to believe. So ask him, what, what, what are you struggling with? What are you doubting him? What do you need to believe? And then share that doubt with somebody. Say, man, I'm really struggling. I'm really doubting. Could you pray for me? Would you walk alongside me through this? We need people to do this. Will we be an open place for the doubter? Not even just inside the church, but people that are coming into the church and want to be a part of it, who are struggling to believe the gospel. Will we welcome them? Will we show mercy to them, as the passage says, and walk alongside them in their unbelief? Uh, or those who are trapped in their sins. So he said, hey, there's some of these people that have gone the way of these false teachers, but you need to come alongside those people. And verse uh, 23 says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Of course, that's a pointing to eternal fire, hell, that we're going to literally, through loving people and have mercy people through the gospel, snatch people out of the hands of hell. How cool is that? I actually can get this part of the mission. Seems pretty cool. That I can be someone who comes alongside people in such a way, when I see them going the ways of sin, I can say, because I love you and because I care about you, I want to extend the mercy of Christ to you. I want to walk through this with you, and I want to point you to repentance in Jesus Christ, uh, that you can find salvation, hope, and hope. There's people struggling out there in all kinds of sins. There's people in this room struggling with all kinds of sins right now. Would we be willing to find somebody we want to invite into our life and to share this struggle with them? that they might be merciful to us and help snatch us out of the fire that leads to not eternal life, but eternal condemnation. This mission is urgent. This mission is, requires swift action. But notice the kind of action he says to go in. He says to go in mercy. Or Paul says in Galatians 6 that we're to go in in a gentle spirit to restore those 
there's the passage, that we are to go in and if we're spiritual, that we should restore people in a spirit of gentleness, keeping a watch on yourself, lest you be tempted to bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ in Galatians 5 is that we would love our neighbors, that we would love our neighbors because we've been so loved by God. So will we be these kinds of people? Will we be these kinds of people that create a culture that's based on the gospel doctrine of the person work of Jesus Christ, that would express itself in a culture uh, where we are people that are godly because we are gospel people? Would we be a people who are united together around the gospel? Would we be a people that are marked by mercy and grace and love? Would we be a people uh, who is building up community and gospel belief? This is what Jude is saying is going to save you. This is what Jude is saying we're called to do as a church. And I know what you're thinking. You're trying to wrap it up, but you haven't got the point four. Gotcha. Point four is this. We contend for a gospel culture built on gospel doctrine, knowing that we're kept by God and secure until the end. That's the doxology there in verses 24 and 25. The band's going to come, and they're actually going to lead us in a song that is the words of this doxology. So to close the service, to live out point four of the sermon together, we're going to proclaim this goodness of God that we see at the end of the passage because Jude goes back to where he started. He goes back and says that this letter is to the beloved who are kept by Jesus Christ. The doxology goes into and says, to the one who can keep you blameless and holy till the end of time, that this is God's work. It's got to be built on Jesus Christ, his person and work, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together in unity to deliver us to himself in the new heavens and new earth that one day we'll get to experience together. So let's uh, sing together. It's a song we have not sung, so it might take you a minute to catch the words and the melody. Maybe in that time you just need to reflect and say, God, what are you saying to me right now? What is my response to this word that has been spoken today? Where do I need to contend for gospel culture in my life? And then join in in singing these words. Michael and I will be down front. If you want to pray about anything, we would love the chance to pray with you down front. So let's respond however the Lord is leading.